Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. Okay, can you tell me your name? Um, my name is Anissa Drusido. And can you tell me a little bit about your adoption story? Absolutely. Um, I was adopted in the early 1980s here in Central America, Panama. Uh, my sister and I were in an orphanage and a family came and uh, took her out while I was at school. And when I came home, she was gone. Uh, they took her out a second time and then they found out they thought she, they, they would adopt her. And they found out she had a sister, so they didn't want to split the sisters up, so they adopted both of us. Um, how was your experience growing up as an adoptee in the States? Well, I was adopted when I was already uh, older. I wasn't adopted as a newborn or anything like that. I was around 9, 10 when I was adopted. So I knew um, the contrast between the life I was living prior to the life that I was living once I was adopted. Uh, so I, I thought it was a really good experience uh, compared to what I had already been through. That's all I could compare it to. I had siblings. Um, my parents adopted three uh, children here in Panama, and they had four of their own. So it was a total of seven. It was a little, you know, chaotic at the house sometimes, and, you know, a lot <laughs> of things happening and going on. But I was uh, very happy to be a part of a family. And I was very happy to have food, uh, have parents, have a nice house to live in, clean clothes, and, you know, clean everything. So that was mm -hmm. something that I was very happy about. Um, there was uh, some, you know, uh, some issues, uh, but as far as in general, my adoption, I think, was very good. We, my father was in the Army. He was a sergeant mm -hmm. in the Army, and he was stationed here in Panama at a base called Fort Clayton, where we lived for a year or two before being deported. I have a lot of uh, difficulty with time frames because I didn't know my birthday until after I was adopted. So, okay. um, we lived on the base. We went to, you know, military, the U.S. military schools that they had set up here. And uh, then my father got orders to go back to the States. And I remember everybody being happy that we were going back to the States. And I was happy, too, because my experience of uh, the United, well, my idea of the United States was that everybody was rich and everything was you know, the streets were gold and, you know, everything was perfect. So yeah. um, my my mother is uh, very, um, very organized and everything. So I remember her getting everything packed up, you know, getting, getting everything in boxes and the moving company showing up and showing up and taking all of our stuff. And then we went to a guest house where we stayed until it was time for us to fly out. So we flew out of Panama, Central America, and uh, we went to what I know now to be South Carolina. 
before all of this happened, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know what state I landed in or anything. So we flew into what I know now is South Carolina. Uh, we spent probably a few days uh, at some other friends of my parents in North Carolina's house. Uh, when you go back after, you know, when you switch bases or you switch duties, they usually give you a while to, you know, go and see your family and spend time with friends and stuff like that. So we stayed there for a few days and then we drove up to Indiana to meet the, my, what well, would be my extended family. We really didn't mm -hmm. uh, create many bonds there because it wasn't some, it wasn't people that we saw all the time. And back in those days it was phone calls and it was very expensive to call out of state or out of area. So um, we did form a bond with my uncle. I have, I had an uncle, Uncle Bobby, he was a dairy farmer and it was fun to go on his farm. He had all the ice cream <laughs> you could eat. So it was, it was good. Um, my siblings and I had a, always had a good time. We always could entertain ourselves. Uh, my mom was always trying to, you know, make us into the best housewives possible, teaching us how to bake and cook and, you know, things like that. Yeah. And uh, so my father got stationed at Romulus Seneca Army Depot. It's in Romulus, New York, and it's upstate New York. So we went there and we were just living as a normal, you know, family with our issues. And uh, I was playing soccer in high school in the gym and a classmate kicked the ball and I jumped up to catch the ball. And when I came down, my left leg gave out and uh, we didn't have any kind of medical history. Uh, that's why I advocate a lot for original birth certificates so that people can know the medical history. We didn't know any medical history, you know, from my family. And uh, they started treating me for pulled muscles, for calcium deposits and all sorts of stuff. Uh, there was a small clinic on the base you know, just to do like first aid kind of things and stuff, just to get the bleeding to stop, to get you to a hospital or something like that. So they didn't have a yeah. lot of resources. And uh, the x-ray tech, uh, which, you know, he was a handsome looking guy. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> We're still friends to this day on Facebook, but either way, he, after me going through therapy and everything like that, he told my parents, that something isn't right here and that he was going to send re refer me out for a CAT scan. You know, in the eighties, mm -hmm. there is no CAT scan, you know, there on the base or even in the nearest town that we live. So we had to drive pretty far to Rochester, New York for me to have a CAT scan. By the time we made it home to Romulus, New York, my parents had already gotten a phone call at the house because back in that day we didn't have cell phones. So at the house, yeah. they had already called and said that I needed to check in that same night to Geneva General Hospital because that it was a tumor and they needed to see, you know, what kind and everything, if it was malignant or benign. They did the, yeah. uh, they did the biopsy the, fo the following day and they said it was a tumor and I needed further treatment. And they didn't know what kind or anything like that. And my father and I then went to Walter Reed uh, Military or Medical Center in Washington, D.C., 
where we spent uh -huh. probably two to three months up there. Uh, well, I was going through testing and everything like that. The cancer was given a name. It was, we were told it was synovial cell sarcoma. It was extremely aggressive. Never have, never were they seen, never was it seen, sorry, in, you know, uh, teenagers or anything like that. It's usually a cancer that affects like uh, runners or people that do extreme sports uh, later on in their life. So the, my parents were told that I could either have like drastic surgery to, and my leg would be extremely, you know, bad, badly formed or, or an amputation. So when they said that, my dad started crying and I was like, oh, wow, I've never seen this guy cry. This is really bad. And, you know, um, I just prepared myself mentally for an amputation because that's just how I've survived most of, you know, my life is just preparing for the worst and, you know, hoping for the best. So um, they ended up amputating my leg three inches above the knee. And uh, we went, we were then transferred. The military has a cancer center down in Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. So we were then sent down to San Antonio, Texas for two years uh, for me to do my chemo treatment and everything like that, learn how to work, walk with a prosthetic leg, get a port cat mm -hmm. placed and, you know, all of that stuff. We were there when my treatment was over. My father, I believe, re-enlisted in this process. So he was sent back up to uh, Fort, uh, Fort, okay, San Antonio. Okay, <laughs> sorry. He was then sent back uh, to Seneca Army Depot in Romulus, where he did his first retirement as active duty. And uh, we were living there. You know, we graduated from high school. I met a guy. I felt, well, I was told that, you know, it was love. I was kind of pressured a little bit. My mom would make comments like, you know, you need somebody to help you pay for your prosthetic leg, you know, things like that. So I thought I was in love and I thought I needed to have somebody to help take care of me. He was a guy in the military and I've always been, you know, very attracted to guys in military. My dad was a superhero when he put the uniform on and, you know, it was just something that impressed you. Yeah. So, um, it was a very, um, bad combination of him and I, I didn't know a lot of things that I do mm -hmm. know now at the time. Uh, we had a lot of issues with domestic violence. Uh, I was easily triggered because of my past and because of preparing that he's going to leave me and, you know, all sorts of trauma and everything mm -hmm. that comes along with the whole adoption process and everything like that. And to add to that, losing a leg and you know, um, dealing with those kind of yeah. demons. So we were together. Vanessa was my, I got pregnant. My daughter, Vanessa was born, uh, after maybe two, two months, two and a half months or three months, somewhere in that time frame. I had went out with my girlfriends for the first time. I was so tired because Vanessa was always an early riser. And, you know, we went to the club and I fell asleep on the bar and my friends were like, oh my gosh, you've turned into a lightweight. Then I was like, I just got to go home. You know, I got to go home. <laughs> I can't do this. 
And I'm also thinking Vanessa's going to be up tomorrow early. And her father was not a hands-on kind of guy. Uh, and I kind of encouraged it too because I, I didn't want him to change her diaper or anything like that because I had been sexually molested by my biological uh, uncles and by my biological mother's boyfriends. So I always protected her that way. Even if that was her father, I still didn't trust him. So I kind of encouraged him not to be hands-on uh, and uh, he, but he wouldn't pick her up. He was like, oh, Vanessa's crying. And I'm like, well, pick her up. And he's like, no, you can pick her up. And you know, I didn't yeah. push it much. So when I got home that night, she had been sleeping. Uh, I put her down every night. Eight o'clock was her bedtime. So I put her down and I went out and I knew I had until probably five or six the next morning before, you know, she would be up. And uh, I was going upstairs. I wanted to see her. I come in the house and I don't know if I caught him in the middle of doing something or planning to do something. Uh, but when I came in, he was like, where'd you go? I'm like, well, we went down to, you know, such and such club. And I said, I'm too tired. And, you know, my friends bought me home. And he was like, I don't believe you. You went to go see some man. I'm like, what? I was like, no, cut it out. You know, it, I that that's the furthest thing that I'm thinking about right now, you know. And so I mm -hmm. picked up the, the phone because the charger was upstairs and I started to go up the steps and I have to go up them one by one because I have one leg. So he shoved past me and made it to yeah. the top of the steps. And I didn't think anything of it. Uh, he's what, six foot. I'm five, nine. And I, I'm not a small person. I could probably use my body weight to push through it. And, you know, it wasn't anything that really alarmed me and there was no way in my mind that I thought he was going to do yeah. anything you know crazy so when I got to the top of the steps finally he was up there you know already telling me all sorts of stuff calling me all sorts of names and I was like listen I don't want to deal with this I don't want to fight with you right now I had like one white Russian and I was like exhausted and I just wanted to go to bed I wanted to Look at Vanessa, take my shower, and go lay down. Well, I'm pushing against him. He's mm -hmm. pushing against me. I, the back behind me is the steps going down. So all of a sudden, like, he shoves me, and I just feel like my body, like, loses weight. Like, I just feel like I am, you know, like, off the ground. And I, the last thing that I remember is, I can't believe he pushed me down the steps. That was the last memory that I have. So I wake up and I'm in the ER and Vanessa is in a baby carrier next to me and he, he had been arrested. In all of this, you know, you can do like the pre-recording 911. I had pushed the 911 with the cordless phone in my hand. And so I guess they heard or whatever. And so the cops mm -hmm. came. I had it not been for that. I don't know what exactly would have happened. Yeah, thank God you did. So um, after that, I decided, okay, so I cannot be with this man because he's going to kill me or I'm going to kill him. And I don't want this relationship for Vanessa to grow up seeing. So the courts helped me to get an order of restraint. They put us in a, in a 
battered women's hideout for a while. I couldn't tell anybody where I was. And so I got rid of him. And then I started my journey as a single mother making choices that I shouldn't have made uh, just to try to make ends meet. I never had an addiction. Uh, you know, I never, you know, did anything that, you know, would be like what I thought would be harmful to me or to Vanessa. So I started working and uh, he never paid child support. I had him put in jail. I had went through all of the process possible, but I didn't want to go on full welfare and I wasn't eligible not even to get, you know, coverage for Vanessa's medical uh, coverage. I had to pay for that in my own pocket because I was making just enough not to qualify, but not enough to make ends meet. So I yeah. would watch, you know, people's kids that worked at night. I would, you know, do different things to, to make money, get a little job here, a little job there. But Vanessa was too young for me to really do much. So then I decided, well, I can go back, I can go back to school and, you know, try to juggle, you know, that. And I, I did that. I went and I became a dental assistant and mm -hmm. I started working that. I got sick with a dirty needle by the dentist handing it back to me twice. And that kind of put, a, you know, like a bad taste in my mouth for, for the dental assisting, but I enjoyed it. So I thought I wanted to be a hygienist. And then when I wanted to do that, I couldn't afford to go to school and be a mom at the same time. So it's feed my kid, provide a roof or go to school. And mm -hmm. so I decided that I was going to, you know, be a mom, take care of my kid. So I started working and doing, you know, this and that. I met my biological, well, my biological sister uh, on my mother's part. We don't have the same father. Um, she said, I found, you know, our biological mother and she wants to know if I can give you her phone number. I said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. That's not true. First, I said, no, I don't want anything to do with her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with her. That woman is horrible. Why do I want her in my life? And then, you know, she started saying, you know, you have to forgive and blah, 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 all of this stuff. And I said, let me think about it. So then she called me back later and I said, yeah, go ahead and give it to her. That same day she called me and, you know, uh, she asked what I was doing, how I was doing and, you know, just trying to catch up and stuff like that. And I just kept talking to her uh, hidden from my my adoptive mom because she would have not been happy. And so she told my uh, biological mother said, um, why don't you come down to Phoenix? I can help you with Vanessa and you can go to school. Sounded like a beautiful thing because she was running a senior citizen, um, kind of like a senior citizen home out of her house. And she said, you know, Vanessa can go to school. You get her ready in the morning. She goes to school when she comes home. You know, she can be here with me. You can be in school. You can do whatever. I believed her. So I believed her, I guess, out of desperation because nobody had said that. I mean, after I left my husband, I was told by my mom, you made your bed, you lie in it, you know? So like 
yeah. statements like that made me understand that there was no way that, you know, they would be able to help me or they would be willing to help me. So yeah. when she extended that invitation, I said, great. I had a friend and he was like, I'm going to be moving to Phoenix also. And I was like, really? And I said, well, that's good. I'll, I'll know somebody there. So I went down and uh, my mother lived in Glendale. My biological mother lived in Glen Glendale. And uh, I started helping her, you know, run her business out of her home and uh, doing a lot of administrative stuff and, you know, helping cook and stuff for the, the elderly women in the home. Mm -hmm. But uh, she has some issues where I don't know if she can't forgive herself for the past or whatever. But after a while, she started being extremely angry at my daughter. And I was like, you know, why are you talking to her like that? Why are you snapping at her like that? And she's like, well, she has to learn. She can't, you know, she can't be speaking when adults are speaking. And I'm like, no. Yeah. That's not how it works. You know, she's my kid. And uh, mm -hmm. she, you know, always extremely jealous of Vanessa. And so long story short, we got into a fight because of her and what she expects out of my daughter that was maybe three or four. And yeah. I said, listen, you're not to talk to her like that. You're not to treat her like that, you know. And she was like, well... If you don't like it, you can get out. So I'm in Phoenix. And I'm like, okay. I call up my friend, Kurt. I said, hey, this woman just kicked me out. And she's like, oh, come on over, you know, whatever. So he um, worked at a grocery store and a flower shop. And he would help me take care of Vanessa. When I had to go to my do my internship, I begged my adoptive parents to take Vanessa for me to do my internship because my internship for for the program that I was in for a medical assistant, it wasn't like uh, set times. It, it had to vary and in different departments. And I couldn't afford to get her a babysitter. So I sent her back to New York. I finished my internship. I went back to New York because the other thing that I realized is that Phoenix is someplace that I did not like. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because I like trees, I like green and there the yards are stone, sand and, <laughs> you know, peppercorn trees. And I don't like that. So yeah. I got done. I drove from Phoenix back up to New York. I got into Watertown. I got my daughter. I spent the night there at my parents' house. And then I went down to the town where I usually lived. And I started to try to put my life back together. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to apply for different um, positions in the medical field because after I went to Pima Medical Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, I, well, in Tempe, Arizona, I wanted to go to be a physician's assistant. And in Syracuse, they have this really good program and, you know, all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to go back home, try to get this loan paid down get Vanessa, you know, to grow up a little more so that she's a little more independent. And then we can move closer to Syracuse and I can go to, you know, the program there. Well, in that, I couldn't find a job in the medical field that was paying me enough. I was 
being offered more money to work in a factory soldering and putting together wire harnesses. Uh So I started doing that again in the catch 22 where not enough money to survive, but not too much to get assistance. Exactly. So we were struggling. I accepted a job at a retail store for Christmas in 2003 and uh, it was just for, you know, the holiday season. And then after that, I was done. I would catch up on some electric bill because, you know, that in the wintertime that goes sky yeah. high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you pay enough for it not to get turned off, but for you to have a balance at the end. And you're always working out payments and, you know, paying what you're able to. Uh, some months I was uh, paying electric. The other months I was paying water and sewer and telephone and then the next month i'd have double the electric and you know that whole thing was going on my car was broken down and so i said i'm gonna do this because the year before we had had a dollar store christmas and this christmas i wanted to give you know give her a a nicer christmas Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i said okay i'm gonna do this and she's already older she's got the she's a key uh what is it a lock key child where she has the necklace with the key so she comes home opens the door and like two hours later i'm home okay yeah so and then we would always i would always call her and check on her and everything like that so a friend of mine comes into the retail store that i was working and she said hey i bought some stuff here but i lost the receipt but i bought it on this credit card can i bring it in and she's my friend since high school we're buddy buddies Uh, she's one of the girls that you know took me out after I had Vanessa, you know, we had a long history together. And I said, sure, you know, I didn't care. It was a retail store. I I wasn't going to be doing my career out of there. And I figured, you know, it would just be that time. But then it happened a few more times. And after you say yes, it's hard to say. And it's hard to say no. So um, that ended... I stopped working. That was over. I went home and I'm like, okay, you know, just living my life, not having any, any thoughts of anything else, not even thinking about, you know, the retail store or anything like that. The sheriffs came knocking on my door, like around April of 2004. And I'm like, yes, Uh, I didn't think they were coming to my house, but I'm like, yes. And she's like, are you Anissa Drusito? And I said, yeah. Do you know such and such? And I said, yeah. Why is she okay? And they're like, yeah. Um, did you work at, you know, this? Yes. And did you do this and that and that? I said, well, no, I didn't do that. I did do this. And I said, why is there a problem? And uh, she was like, well, you're being accused of, you know, doing all of this stuff. So then we sat down and uh they were talking to me and I thought that we were just working things out to figure out what had happened. And I thought it would all be cleared up. So then uh, she said, okay, um, you know, we're going to look into these and this and that said, okay. So then uh, she called me, the sheriff called me one day and she said, Hey, can you come down after work? And I said, sure. I called my neighbor and I said, Hey, I got to run down to the sheriff's after work. And uh, can you keep an eye on Vanessa? I call Vanessa. Hey, if anything, you know, go next door to Miss Pat's and she's going to be there. I have to run down. And she's okay, mom. All right. So I went down and they arrested me. And I was like, okay, (laughs) what's going on? 
And then they were like, well, you're being accused of uh, grand larceny, uh, falsifying business records. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? And well, uh, you're not going to get a bail because you're a flight risk. And I'm like, a flight risk? Where am I going? And she's like, well, you were born in Jamaica. And I was like, yeah, I was born there, but I was adopted and bought here. Long story short, I was arrested. They didn't want to give me bail. The next day I saw a judge. I explained to the judge, I'm not going to run anywhere. I have a full-time job. And uh, he gave me bail. My full-time job bailed me out. So my full-time job bails me out. I get out. I go back to work. And I'm trying to get through, you know, the whole process of uh, going back and forth with the public defender. Yeah. So I'm going back and forth with the public defender. And my co-defendant gets six months of weekends in jail. But because Mm -hmm. she had a lawyer, I couldn't afford a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I have a public defendant. And that's almost like not having a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. I know. My brother has problems with the law. Yeah, so you know how that goes. So um, the lawyer, uh, the public defendant came to me and said, well, uh, the district attorney is offering you one to three years. And I'm like, one to three years? And he's like, yeah, but calm down, calm down. I spoke to your employer. They'll give you a letter to get out on work release. So you'll be out maximum a month and a half. He goes, that's a better deal than your co-defendant got because she has six months of weekends and Mm -hmm. you can get out maximum a month and a half go away lay down read some book get some rest and you know you'll be out in no time Mm -hmm. and i was like "Hmm, let me think about it so i spoke to my mom she said yes she would watch vanessa and i Packed up all my house, put it in the storage area. Um, I had enough money uh, from my vacation pay and everything that I was getting from my job because I had like two or three years worth of vacation because I couldn't afford to take vacation. Mm -hmm. And um, I got all of that uh, paid up on my car, paid up on the storage area. told Vanessa, mom will be back in two months maximum. Mm -hmm. preparing for the worst and so i went to court nobody said anything to me about hey if you plead guilty you're gonna get deported or nothing like that yeah so i cut all my hair off and i went and i pled guilty and i got processed and sent up to bedford hills maximum security prison in new york city that's where everybody gets processed and then you get put down into your security level. Uh huh. So I'm sitting up there in New York city and I am like psychologically freaking out, but on the outside trying to act like nothing is wrong. Uh, I went up, I got processed. I was sitting in my cell waiting for the time for me to be moved down to medium, uh, to medium security. And, uh, I get called up to the desk and they're like, uh, Ripley, that was, that was my name before my married name from my first marriage, Ripley, you got a visitor. And I'm like, a visitor in New York city. My parents came all the way up here. My sister came all the way up here. I don't understand. So we, I went down to the visitor center and, uh, there was three big dudes there. And I was like, 
who are these guys? So I sit down and they're like, from the look on your face, I can tell that you're wondering who we are. And I'm like, yeah. And so then they're like, introduced themselves and they said that they were ice. And I was like, ice. Only ice I know is the ice on the streets and the ice (laughs) in my freezer. So, you know, I'm like, what does that mean? And they were like, you know, immigration. They went through the whole thing. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I said, you can't be looking for me because I am American. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I, it's apple pie and then Anissa. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay. So, and they're like, what border did you cross? And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Come again? And they're like, what border did you cross? I said, I don't know what border I crossed. And then they're like, how did you get to the U.S.? And I was like, my parents brought me here. And they were like, what language do you speak? And I'm like, English? Because I couldn't speak Spanish back then. Mm-hmm. And well, I could speak just enough to communicate to the guy to change my oil and you know <laughs> and to help him and his family and his friends fill out their their welfare paperwork that was something that i did to get free oil change and tune-ups and stuff like that uh-huh. so i was like well english and i can probably spread a couple spanish words if it needs to happen like where's the bathroom or something like that and he was like oh so um your parents where are they from? What country? And I was like, the U.S.? My mom and my dad are both from Indiana. And they're like, but you are not from here. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm adopted. I was adopted as a child in Central America, Panama. I was born in Jamaica. And my biological mother took me from Jamaica to Panama, and then they adopted me. My father was in the military, and I came into the country on his military orders, and uh, I am their child. I'm their child. Yeah. And so they were like, "Well, there's something wrong because I don't know. We have to look into it, and we'll get back to you." And I was like, "Don't worry about it, Anissa. You know." They'll look into it and everything will get ironed out because Mm -hmm. I know my parents didn't take me in at night, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, I mean, I was on military orders. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't not even like a regular thing. It was a U.S. army thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So I kind of knew that everything was going to work out. And so I'm focused on getting to Albion because when I get to Albion, that's where I'll be able to do all the interviews with the work, uh, work release board and everything like that. So finally, we get bused from New York City down to Albion, which is closer to where I live. Mm-hmm. I'm in the medium security prison. I go in front of work release board after three weeks. Well, four weeks. Let's just call it four weeks. And... Uh, I get approved for work release and I get approved for work release. And it says I have an ice detainer, so I can't be let out. And I'm like, ice detainer. What does that mean? So I start asking the inmates. I'm Uh like, what does an ice detainer mean? Oh, that means trouble. That means you're going to get deported. And I was like, deported. What are you talking about? Uh What do you know? You know, you don't know anything. Yeah, you're an American. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm thinking, these girls that are telling me this stuff, they don't know what they're talking about either. Mm -hmm. So 
I was only allowed to call my parents like once every two weeks. And so I wasn't able to call and, and say, you know, I have an ice container. Do you know what that means? So I waited. And before I was able to call them, I got an order of deportation sent to me via the mail at Albion Women's Correctional Facility. And I was like, what? Yeah. Deported. So it wasn't time for me to call home yet, but I couldn't not call home now that I have an order of deportation. So I call my mom and I'm like, mom, what is happening? I have an order of deportation. What is going on? And, you know, she's like, well, if you hadn't gotten in trouble, none of this would be happening. And you need to understand that we have to see what's going on. We have to find out from a lawyer what's going on and call me back, you know, next week. I have an order of deportation. My mom is pissed off at me because I have an order of deportation. And I'm like, our relationship was already rocky because of the treatment that she started giving my daughter. Uh, she started mistreating her and waking her up. My, my daughter's a heavy sleeper. When she goes to sleep, it's hard to wake her up. But mm -hmm. my daughter would write me and say, Grandma woke me up by grabbing a hole, a handful of hair. I was on the couch and she wanted to wake me up off the couch and she grabbed a handful of hair to yank me off the couch. And those oh are things gosh. that she would do to my biological sister. So I kind of knew that this is something that she had done before. So, you know, it's not far stretch for me to believe that something Your daughter, that she did. Yeah. Right. So I don't have a relationship with my biological sister because she's still pissed off at me because she left our, she left the house. And after my mom, she, my mom told her to come downstairs and do her homework in the kitchen. And she came downstairs with all of her books and like kind of dropped it on the kitchen table. And it was a wooden table. And, you know, those books from school are thick. So it made a noise. So my mom took that as her being rude and came mm -hmm. running at her, jumped on her. They fell to the ground. She's pulling chunks of hair out of my sister's head. My other sister jumped on my mom, grabbed her so that my sister could get up and run out the house. Mm -hmm. And she never came back. And ever since then, you know, I've tried to get her to come, you know, to come back and have some sort of a relationship, but it never worked out. And then yeah. I was viewed as the bad person because I stayed, but I am like a sophomore in high school yeah, with, a prosthetic leg. with a prosthetic leg. What was I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Where, how far am I supposed to run? Whose family am I going to go sleep on their couch that now has to take care of me and my medical issues, right? Yeah. So that has always had a huge strain, and we have never been able to be sisters. So I contacted her, and I asked her to please get Vanessa and keep her until I get this sorted out. Mm -hmm. So now my daughter is in Miami. My mom hates me because I told my daughter, if she ever does that to you again, call 911. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, now I have an order of deportation. This woman is pissed at me for me telling my daughter to call 911 and for her to tell for me, for me telling her, I know you did that to her because you've done that. I've seen you do that to Karine, to my sister before. Right. Yeah. 
So um, now she's mad at me. So then I call her back after she's spoken to a lawyer and she's like, you got yourself into this predicament and your father and I can get in trouble for human trafficking according to the lawyer your father spoke to because of, of what we did. And I was like, so is this my fault? Is that what you're trying to tell me? She hung the phone up on me. Oh my gosh. So after she hung the phone up on me, I started freaking out. I was like, I'm going to be deported to Jamaica that I left when I was about five, four or five. And to Panama, where I was sexually molested by my uncles, beaten by my grandfather that is dead already, was in an orphanage, suffering hunger, parasite and lice infestation. And I have no family that I know of in Jamaica or in Panama or anywhere. Uh-huh. So I was like, I have a 401k. I'm going to cash that 401k out. I'm going to get an immigration lawyer and I'm not going to be deported. That was my plan. Uh-huh. So I was in state's custody for almost a year and they were like, we can't keep her anymore. So they hand me over to ICE. They send me back up to Bedford Hills. ICE comes, gets me and takes me to Hudson County Jail in New Jersey, right across the bridge. Because the immigration court that I was seeing is in New York City. So I was going back and forth, fighting my deportation. I had a lawyer. Her name was Monica Reed. And she would always say, don't worry about it. You're not going to be deported. This is illegal. You are the child of a U.S. citizen. This is not going to happen. And I would be like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Then I would go back to jail and wait until the next court, you know, date, whatever. So they take me to court and I get there and I don't see the lawyer. And I'm like, where is she? Yeah. And so they call me in. They call me out of the pen, the holding pen kind of thing. They take me into the court and they tell me that my lawyer has died of an asthma attack. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like. I can't catch a break. <laughs> I am like, what? Who dies of an asthma attack in 2005 for crying mm-hmm. out loud? This is the end of 2005. So once the ICE officers got, you know, to know that I'm not an aggressive person, I pay attention. I'm not going to run because I can't run. You know, <laughs> they kind of treated me a little better. They stopped putting shackles on me because it was horrible. It was very hard to walk with shackles on a prosthetic leg. So on the last day back, I was the only one in the van. And so the officer that would always, you know, talk to us and stuff, he was like, so Rip, what are you going to do? Your lawyer checked out and what's, what's going to happen now? And I was like, I have one more 401k. I'm going to cash that and get another lawyer because I cannot be deported. I have no place to go to. Mm-hmm. And he was like, Rip, think about it. And I was like, I am. I'm thinking about it. I can't take my daughter to these third world countries. Are you kidding? Mm-hmm. I'd rather die. And he was like, Rip, since you've been at Hudson County, you haven't had any visitors. You don't get mail. You don't get a care package. You're surviving on the little bit of money that New York State sent with you to survive, right? I said, uh-huh. yeah. 
He said, so you're not the first adoptee that has come through here and you're not going to be the last. He said, if you spend that money and that lawyer doesn't have the, and that lawyer doesn't get you to stay here, you're going to be deported and you're going to be deported with no money. With nothing. With nothing. And then that's going to be harder for you to try to get your daughter and get yourself back on your feet. He said, you should go and fight this from the outside. And I was like, I got to think about it. And he was like, you want some McDonald's or Burger King? I was like, I don't care. You know, because now I'm thinking about all this stuff and I'm like, okay, so my mom and dad not once came to court with me, not once wrote a letter, uh, not once tried to help my siblings, nothing. Um, I was like, it's true. I mean, I, I don't have like bank accounts. I don't have all my savings is gone because I've been almost locked up for two years now. Mm-hmm. And so all the money that I left my mom has been consumed in, you know, my, my daughter, my car payments that my parents had to end up selling, you know, just a bunch of stuff. So I'm like, this guy, you know, it makes sense. So I waited for like a week. And then I told the officer that I wanted to speak to the sergeant because in Hudson County, I wasn't in general population. They had me down in the infirmary. And in the infirmary, infirmary is in the basement. And so I was locked up with all the heroin addicts when they came in and they were kicking and vomiting and pooping all over the place. They would put them in my cell, not in the other ones. Sometimes there were some officers that wouldn't put them in with me, but most of the time they would stick them in there with me. And the sewer would back up. I was locked in for 23 hours a day. I was let out for one hour. And when I was let out for that one hour to shower, I had to literally bang on the doors for them to hear me. They they would like just forget about me in there. Uh So I was like, I... I'm going on two years uh, from being away from my daughter. I'm the only parent she has in her mind. She's acting up at my sister's because she's a teenager and she's going through her, you know, her issues too. Uh So I called for the sergeant and I said, I want to sign. I want to go. So I signed. They one morning busted open the door with their flashlights. It's all dark. It's like three o'clock in the morning. They're like, get dressed, you're going on a vacation. I got dressed and they came and they put me in a big van and we were all given a breakfast in a brown paper bag. And we all sat in the van, in the parking lot in different areas, close to the gate to whatever time it is that you're supposed to go on board. You're the last person on board. And uh, when your time comes up, they pull up and they walk you through the airport. They walk you up to the gate. They give them your ticket and you get on the plane. And that was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do. Leaving a country where all my life was and going yeah. to a country I had 
no idea who was going to be on the other side of the plane. And not only that, I didn't even know how I could end up in a position like this. Uh I had to, you know, I couldn't look back and I couldn't look out the window, but I wanted to. And I'm sitting there like it was me, the engine in the bathroom, and I'm like in this little seat and I'm, I want to look out the window, but I can't because it would, I would be hysterical, you know? So I'm trying to hold it together on the plane and, um, you know, we're in the air and they're passing out food and everything. And I'm just like freaking out because I don't know what's going to happen when I land. I'm going to land in a place that I don't have any idea. So we land. I get up with the rest of the passengers because I have one piece of paper, which is my handwritten birth certificate and the clothes that I have on my body. That's all that I have. Oh my gosh. And so I get off the plane. By this time, my prosthetic leg broke while I was in Hudson County. I have a broken prosthetic leg and I'm walking off the plane and I'm thinking, I'm going to get off the plane and I'm just going to walk. Right. And so then two cops show up and they say, come. And I'm like, me? (laughs) Yes, come. So they take me into a room and they start like, it's just like drilling me. Like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing here? I was deported here. Yes. But you don't look Jamaican. And I was like, that's what everybody tells me. You don't sound Jamaican. You sound American. I said, so do you think I'm trying to break into your country? I mean, (laughs) you guys accepted me and I had to go through the whole thing. I was born in Jamaica. My my biological grandmother died. My biological mother took me to Panama, you know, the whole nine. And then they were just sitting there like in disbelief, like, because my birth name is Bloomfield Smith. My adopted name is Drusito Winters. My married name is Ripley. And I'm being deported with all of these names, also known as, also known as, also known as. And they're like, so you stole and uh, you got deported for that and you're American, you have American parents? I said, yeah. And they're like, and, and just questioning me. And I was like, listen, why did you bend over to the US and accept me if you didn't believe that I was a Jamaican? Yeah. I have a handwritten pass, I have a handwritten birth certificate that was done in 1970. And I mean, they don't even accept those anymore. And they accepted me like that. So Mm -hmm. now I am starting to say bad words. I'm starting to raise my voice because I am starving. And I need to get to a phone to call somebody and say, I'm in Jamaica now. If I die, please let them know that I'm, you know. Because nobody knows where I'm at. Nobody knows where I'm at because I wasn't allowed to make a phone call before I left, they even stood by the phone. So I couldn't go out and make a phone call. Wow. So they finally let me out. And I don't know if you know, but in Jamaica and in these Latin countries, 
men can yell at you and say whatever they want to to you. So I walk out the doors and there's like a row of taxis and all these guys are standing there screaming what they will do, how many times they'll do it to me and, you know, all sorts of this nasty, they call me, they were telling, yelling browning at me and I didn't understand that I was browning and I was like, who is browning? So there was this older gentleman, he was just sitting on his taxi like, you know, just sitting there doing nothing. And I felt a little better to approach him than I did, you know, the other people. And uh, so I said, I need to use your phone. Can you please, you know, give me a minute? And he said, how much money do you have? I said, I have no money. I have nothing except for this paper. And he said, you're deported? I said, yes. So then I had to tell him the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> Board in Jamaica, da, 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 da. he said, just one minute. And I said, yes, thank you. So he let me call. I called the States. They called some people from church. They drove from Montego Bay over to Kingston because I was, I'm from Montego Bay. I was supposed to be sent there. They sent me to Kingston. So I waited as close as I could to the older gentleman until he got a fare. He left. And then I was there by myself. Finally, the people showed up that were supposed to take me. My biological mother is now involved in this. She, through trying to get in touch with this person and that person, found an aunt that still lives on the island. So these church people are supposed to take me over to Montego Bay. And the next day, my aunt's supposed to come and pick me up. So I'm calling back home to try to get my 401k, you know, moving. And when you get out of jail, there is like a or prison, I should say, because there's a difference, jail and prison. Mm-hmm. When you get out of prison, uh, right before you're released, you go through these classes and they tell you that you're going to be afraid to go out. And I was like, these people are crazy. If there's a door that I know I can go out freely, I don't need anybody to tell me that I won't be able to do it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, whatever. So I get to these people's house and they're like, here, you can sleep in this room. I shut the door and I could not go out that door. I could not go out that door. I was freaking out because of the situation that I was in. I'm in these people's house. I don't even know. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, just everything, the uncertainty and that trauma of being locked up and now, you know, turning that over to being able to be a free person. Yeah. Which I'm still not a free person. I still don't feel like I'm a free person. So I, the next day comes and I'm like, okay, my aunt, my aunt is going to come and get me and maybe I'll feel better. Or maybe, you know, I can get over this feeling like I just wanted to end my life. That's all. And so the, I didn't have a phone or anything. And so the people that I'm staying with said they called my aunt and she's not answering her phone. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> anything else? So the second day, aunt still not answering the phone. The third day, the guy, the man goes down on his own to where she's supposed to work, saw her in person and talked to her. I don't know what was said. 
But he said, your aunt's coming to pick you up tomorrow. Four days. I'm like, okay. Tomorrow comes. They take me downtown. I'm sure they're tired of me being in their house. They take me downtown and literally outside the door of where she works and open the, the van door. And I got out and there was a, a woman's face that looked familiar. She resembled people that I remember from my childhood. Mm -hmm. She comes up and, you know, gives me a hug and all of this stuff. And I feel totally numb because I am like really upset that it's taken her four days to come and get me. And I'm just like, hi, Thea, how are you? All good. And, you know, blah, blah. She's like, well, my husband doesn't want a white woman in his house. So you have to wait until he goes to sleep before you can come in the house. And you have to wait until he goes to bed, uh, he goes to work before you can get up and leave the house. You can't stay at home during the day because he comes home for lunch. So you can go out and do whatever you want to do. Stay in the park here. Wait for me. At 10 o'clock, we'll go up to the house. He'll be asleep by then. By 8 in the morning, he should be gone. You get up and leave the house before lunch because at lunchtime, he comes home. So the whole time I am doing this staying in the streets thing, being harassed by everybody. And I'm like, okay, I got my money to that came in for my 401k. Mm -hmm. I, I got a room. I rented a room, sent for Vanessa. She came and I'm sitting there in Jamaica with this smile on my face. Like everything is okay. Everything is okay. <laughs> and I'm like looking around and I'm not a nurse. I'm not a teacher. I can't be a tour guide because I can't stand on the buses while they're moving up and down and turning and all that stuff that I'm, and I get motion sick very, very easily. So I was like, Hmm, I don't know how to cook Panamanian, I mean, Jamaican food. I don't know how to, to eat the way they eat. So I'm going to the store and I'm buying macaroni and cheese roast potatoes pasta thing and that's extremely expensive when you're buying it because they have to pay import on it and everything mm. so one box of macaroni and cheese is probably costing you four dollars so every once in a while i would um go to a woman that in the front of her yard has a shop that she cooks but because of my medical training and cross-contamination and all that stuff, I would look at the stuff and I would be scared to eat. But I only had a limited amount of money. So I went down to an internet cafe once and I looked up Central America Panama because I also had papers. I knew I had papers to come to Panama. So I go down there and I see Panama has call centers that... If you speak English, you can get a job in and the economy and everything looked better than Jamaica at that time. Yeah. So I used my last $2,000 to pack up my daughter and I and to come here. Jamaica didn't want to give me a passport. They didn't want to give me IDs. They didn't want to give me anything. So I had to go to Kingston, plead my case to the Panamanian embassy for them to give me a travel document for me to travel with that document. And my daughter has her U.S. passport. So, you know, 
we came to Panama. My mother had left, my biological mother had left the U.S. voluntary deport, deportation because the marriage that she was in didn't work out. So, you know, he was supposed to be her sponsor, all that stuff. So now she's in Panama and I'm like, I'll go to Panama too. Yes, come so that, you know, I can help you and we'll make it this time. Me? Yes, okay, okay. So I, in the process that I'm in, in Jamaica for about nine months, I meet this gentleman. He's interested in me. I'm not interested in a relationship or no man right now. I'm trying to get, you know, myself together. But he was a, he was a really nice, nice guy. And I was like, okay, you know. I said, well, I'm not staying in Jamaica, so that's not going to work. And he's like, where are you going? And I said, I want to go to Panama. And he goes, I'll go with you. I said, okay. He goes, but I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> I said, well, I don't either, so we can learn. So I came December of 2006. I landed here in Panama, and I live with my biological mother. That was a horrible nightmare. Because now Vanessa's a teenager uh -huh. and Vanessa can tell her what she thinks of her. My now husband comes to Panama February of 2007. We get married and he's telling my biological mother that, and I don't call her mom or anything. I call her her, her name, Beverly. Yeah. Because we don't have that relationship. She's not my mom. So uh, we're telling Beverly, you know, she cannot treat Vanessa this way. And she's telling me that, you know, I have to do something about her. And I said, what do you want me to do? Abandon her? Kick her out on the street? I'm not going to do that. If I have to choose uh -huh. between you and her, I'm going to choose her. So she told me to get out. I said, okay. Back in the day, when I was looking for a place to stay, I would buy the newspaper, go to the classified ad, Look down, see something I liked, go and look at it. If I liked it, I took it. So I went and I found uh, a house for $250 in Veracruz, Panama. Mentally, I'm still thinking U.S. dollars. We use U.S. dollars here. U.S. dollars, U.S. income. I'm not adjusted to my $3.47 mm. an hour that I'm making now. So when I took the $250 a month house, I was like, oh, can't afford that. <laughs> and so I talked to the gentleman that was renting us the house after, you know, being there for a while and struggling. He lowered the, the rent for us. But my daughter couldn't go to a public school because she didn't speak Spanish. So she had to go to a private school. The private school was $174 a month, plus books, plus utilities, plus uniforms, plus socks. Because they can't wear just any socks. They have to wear spe specific socks, uh, specific this, specific that. Uh, every month, it's something that you have to send money to the school for. And I'm like, wow. So we did that for four four years. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a horrible struggle. We could never get ahead in much because, you know, we had to pay for transportation. We had to pay for this for, for my daughter. And so when Vanessa was 17, a church brother said to me, you know, uh, you should send Vanessa back to the States to get her GED. Have you thought about that? And, you know, I think we were in church at the time, or if not, I would have said, hell no, I'm not going to send her back. You know, sending your only DNA away from you, 
Mm-hmm. Is that even something that crosses anybody's mind that's been adopted and now finally has, you know, a family, you know, and, and not only a family, but the unconditional love that you used to see with other people yeah. that now you see, and now you know how it feels, you know? And so I'm like, no, shit, I'm not going to send her back. What are you talking about? So I came home and my husband and I, you know, laid in bed. And uh, I thought about it and I, I said, I thought, he said to me, so let's think about this with a clear mind. Vanessa will finish school. She cannot pass a test to go to college. What is she going to do? End up working in call centers? Is that the future you Uh foresee for her? And that was like a cold bucket of water. It's true. And this is my sentence, it's not hers. And so I had to separate, you know, my need for what was best for her. Mm-hmm. What was best for her is for her to have a future. So, you know, my husband and I put together, put together some money, bought Vanessa a laptop and sent her back to the US when she was almost 18. So she uh, went to her GED classes and passed her GED with a high enough grade that she got a scholarship to go to business school. It is, it really is because I don't think a lot of kids would have been able to do that her age. That's, and, um, that's amazing. We were sending her money to help her pay for dorm and food and uh Uh she's so awesome that she's such a leader that she was able to get a job as the dorm mom kind of thing yeah the the ra yeah yeah and uh she didn't have to pay for her room so she was like mom you don't have to send me money for that and so we were sending her money for food and for toiletries but it was hard for us you know Mm-hmm. And uh, she graduated, and again, I said to her, you have two months. We'll help you with, you know, your stuff. You have two months to get yourself on your feet. And, you know, we can't continue helping you because although we were helping her, we couldn't grow or afford to do anything here. I mean, I had, like, two pairs of jeans, you know, very little. Not that I need a lot of stuff, but. You know, I had one pair of shoes for mm-hmm. boots for walking because everything here is holy. The sidewalks are all off, you know, not smooth or there's no government going, oh, we have to fix the sidewalk, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I had to get walking boots to be able to walk uh, on, you know, the pavements and stuff like that. I had that and then I had a pair of black flats for church. And those shoes and we needed you know to not have that expense but I told Mm -hmm. Vanessa anytime she wants to study I don't care what I have to do I'm gonna help you because you know I did some pretty shady stuff to try to afford you know things that not like uh, jewelry or anything like that just bare you know necessities Mm -hmm. and I never want my daughter to have to 
you know, be with a guy because, you know, he's going to give her or pay for her or whatever. I don't want that. Yeah. So I said, you got two months, get another job or a better job to get yourself on your feet. So she called me in three weeks and said, you don't have to send me money. I got a second job. I can send you money. And I was like, I don't want you to send me money. I want you to save, to invest, to, you know, get you stuff. Mm-hmm. So, because all throughout all this, you know, we didn't come into a lot of money to where we could go buy yourself a wardrobe. She was, you know, on bare essentials, you know. Yeah. And so she got a job and she got a second job. She was working in both jobs. And then, you know, she was like, I want to go back to school. I said, well, we'll help you. What can we help you with? Well, I'm going to go to school uh, from this time to this time. She had two hours in between school and work and she would sleep in her car. And I, I you know, my husband and I said, if she's doing that, we have to be able to, to sacrifice and help her, too. So, you know, we did that also. She finished and graduated that and went to work for something completely different. (laughs) So, so she is everything to me. I only get to see her every two to three years. We don't get to spend holidays together because Coming out of a cold country to a tropical country at the holiday time, the tickets are like 1500 1800 This year we were supposed to have Christmas in April because she was like, Mom, don't cry. You know, on Christmas, she calls. I start crying. She starts crying. Everybody starts crying. And she's like, Mom, we're not going to say Merry Christmas or anything this year. We're going to wait until April. And we're going to do Christmas, a family Christmas there. I'm going to come down with my tax return. Mm. But then COVID happened. So it'll be three years before I see her again. And that's if they open up the airports here because the airports aren't open here. So I'm here in Panama and... I am doing everything possible to be able to get home. One of the reasons why I agreed to this podcast, I don't like to get undressed in front of people and have them hear all, you know, the bad things or how Mm -hmm. everything that I've been through to perfect strangers. But this is the only thing that I have. When I was deported to Jamaica, I was silenced. Nobody cared to listen to me nobody I, I couldn't call the congress member or whoever and say hey this happened to me and it's messed up uh, there has been several bills that have been introduced most of them have died we have a bill now to give citizenship retroactive to all adoptees that are internationally adopted. Right now, um, there is, right now, there, the, the average is 45,000 to 55,000 international adoptees in the, living in the U.S. that don't have U.S. citizenship or don't know that they have U.S. citizenship or 
know that they don't have U.S. citizenship, know that their paperwork is messed up wow. and are not coming forward. Right now, this is the only thing that I have is my story, my experience, and to try to get the word out about the Adoptee Citizenship Act of 2019. There was a bill that was passed in 2000, and that bill limited the citizenship that was acquired to people under the age of 18, meaning born, yeah. you know, 83 and, and lower. It didn't include everybody. There was a huge loophole. And a lot of us were just living our lives, doing normal mm -hmm. things that everybody does. And, you know, some of us made bad choices. Some people have been deported for... Uh, a bounce check because that's considered a fraud. Um, I broke the law. I'm not denying. I'm not hiding that. I'm not saying that I didn't. I expect to break the law. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I broke the law. I expect to pay the price that, you know, the mm -hmm. government tells me that I have to pay. But I also expect to have a right that was promised to me in 1982 when I was adopted which was yeah. I was supposed to have a family for as long as I lived on this earth. And that was what adoption afforded me as a family. With that family, I have sisters, brothers and sisters, that if they had broken the law with me, they would still be at home while I'm deported. So what is adoption really about? You know, so I want to bring to light this issue because a lot of people don't know mm -hmm. that adoptees are being deported. You know, we were taken from one culture. Our culture was erased. We were reprogrammed with another culture. And then, you know, when you're a child and you're adopted, you think I want to be good because I don't want to be sent back to the orphanage. I never think that as an adoptee that I would, as an adult adoptee, that I would be sent back for being bad. Uh, biological children are bad all the time. We're supposed to be afforded the same rights that biological children have, and biological children are supposed to be afforded the, the citizenship of their parents' yeah. country, wherever that may be. I'm supposed to be afforded that same right. And I paid my price, and I don't expect to be, you know, punished a second time and be, you know, torn apart from my family torn apart from my mom and dad, torn apart from my siblings. On March 8th, I had to say goodbye to my sister that died of cancer through Very a WhatsApp sorry. video call. And I, those are things that, you know, when I had cancer, my sisters took very good care of me and I could not be there for that. My second oldest sister had colorectal cancer. She had surgery. She was one that would bathe me, clean me, and do all sorts of I couldn't be there for her for that. I had to be over a video call, talking to her, crying with her, going through that process with her. My parents haven't passed away yet, but I don't want to go to their funeral or say mm -hmm. goodbye to them through a video call. And no. I don't think that I deserve that. You know, be before I was a big, bad criminal, I was a child, and I was welcomed, mm -hmm. and I was given a family through adoption. It, the adoption is legal. Here in Panama, my name is Anissa Drugido. I have tried to get them to just use my married name and they won't do that. I have to have my father's and my mother's last name 
So, you know, one adoption fairy tale tells you, you know, a family ever after, and then for the lack of paperwork or whatever, whoever was done when I was a little kid playing with Barbie's dolls or, you know, Google Gaga and over a guy, I am punished for mm -hmm. something I had no control over. So Adoptees for Justice is a organization that is fighting for this bill. The bill is, you know, in process. We all the deportees, you know, the deportees are included in the bill. We are hoping to bring light to the situation so that many of us can go back home. I'm not the only adop deported adoptee. We have deported adoptees to Colombia, to Brazil, Korea, China. We have deported adoptees to Ethiopia, Costa Rica. And, you know, all of yeah. them want to go home. You know, all of them are strangers in their country with this COVID issue. Uh, this government is giving out um, like food rations and stuff, but they over, they don't stop here and give us food because everybody thinks that we're rich mm. Americans because we speak English. So it's like a catch 22. I don't belong there and I don't belong here. So, you know, if it wasn't for adoptees for justice, I don't know what we would be doing right now mm -hmm. as far as eating or getting by. So Adoptees for Justice has set up a COVID relief fund that is to help uh, adoptees without citizenship because not only us, but adoptees in the U.S. that don't have citizenship are not eligible for the government yeah. assistance because they don't have citizenship. So they started this fund to help them and, you know, to help the bill. We're looking for people to be on, you know, to be members of Adoptees for Justice, to call your representative, to set up virtual meetings with them, to send emails, to do something. I mean, as an adoptee community, I think we're big enough if we include domestic and international adoptees to be able to have our voices heard. And that's something that, you know, I beg for anybody that's listening to this to please just do something, even if it's a phone call, an email, a tweet, whatever it can be to say, you know, this is mm -hmm. wrong and we need to get this fixed. So, you know, that is my that is my plea. They can go to adoptiesfordustice.org. We have all sorts of information okay. there. They can do donations. A group, a group of adoptees paid for my prosthetic leg that I have on now because my prosthetic leg, you know, every four to five years, they wear down and, you know, you have to get another one. Here, there is no medical coverage. I haven't worked here long enough. I am almost 50, so I don't get hired, you know, as easily as everybody else because they do discriminate against you here that way. Uh, so... There's just so much that all of us go through. We have an Ethiopian adoptee that they turn off the lights and the power. Right now, they have turned off the internet. You cannot access the internet from Ethiopia. And, you know, he's having a hard time mm -hmm. because of COVID. He's not working either. So there's so many cases out there that I don't think that there is a crime severe enough for us to be deported because we're supposed to be children. You know, and biological children, they're serial killers, they're drug dealers, they're yeah. thieves, they're whatever. 
and they don't get deported, mm-hmm. we should have the same rights. I know people are like, oh, they're criminals and they deserved it. That's fine and dandy. And I, uh, yeah. I can appreciate your opinion. And definitely now in today's climate where we're talking about racial injustice and that is a big problem in our court system. And like you told us a bit of your story with the public defender. I know from my experience with my brother um, having trouble with the law and it's just like that does not give you proper representation. Representation. And then you have people being forced to take plea deals without fully explaining everything. And like you said, a bounce check was enough to get someone deported. And this isn't an individual case. This isn't a rare thing to happen. And even myself, my parents um, were actually immigrants. So they had a little bit more uh, knowledge of what to Mm -hmm. do. So they did what they thought, everything they cried to Across the T's and everything, and they still messed up a little bit with my paperwork, where my social security card was never transferred over, and I had trouble when I went to college. They're like, "You're not a citizen. You're not a citizen." I'm like, "What are you talking about? I'm a citizen." So I had to get that fixed before I got married, and thankfully I did. But it's such an easy thing for adoptive parents to overlook when you're doing an international adoption, you're getting this new kid, this new baby, um, that I urge anyone listening to really take in your story and just take a moment to really reflect on what you're doing and what you're promising as an adoptive parent. Because when you choose to have children in any way, biologically, adoption, foster care, whatever, you're taking on that responsibility. And is your responsibility to make sure your child has citizenship, make sure that they can have proper representation, proper family and everything throughout their life, even as adults. Mm-hmm. You, When you adopt a kid, you're not just adopting a kid from one to 18 and then sending them out into the world. And if you are not ready to take that responsibility Mm -hmm. and dedicate your family to that person Mm -hmm. for the entire life, you shouldn't be adopting in the first place. Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. I know it was, it was emotional for you and it was emotional for me. And I really appreciate the time that you're taking into this. Um, and I hope everyone listening will share, donate, do what they can for this cause because it is, it is very important. And um, I'm really sorry yeah. that this happened. And I will try to do what I can to to get the word out about it. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for helping us with your platform. And, you know, if there's anything else, please let me know. I'm so glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.